What do you think of when you hear a Palm Sunday? You think of the uh, shouting, the joy, the, the palm branches, throwing of the cloaks upon the path, the cold Jesus riding into Jerusalem. We think of that, don't we? We think of uh, probably a real joyous time. But, honestly, it's surprising when you understand how Jesus perceived this whole joyful celebration that the people were involved with. I know I always took it as a joyful time. In one sense it was. But in another, it's totally different. The way that Jesus is seeing this, the triumphal entry of Jesus... As being the coronation of the king is the most unique event in any kind of coronations ever in the history of man. I mean, the, the contrast in this story are, are just extreme. It's as full of irony. It is just absolute, just chock full of irony. You see celebration. You see rejoicing. You see joy. You see the glory of it all. The expectation, the hope. I mean, everybody is elated. It's hit a a peak. People are shouting praises. You can imagine the fervor of the crowd. The uh, uh, acclamation reaches its crescendo. People are just ready to explode. And then, on the other hand, on the opposite pole, underneath all this is hypocrisy. That's what Jesus is going to be addressing today on something on occasion that looks so joyous. Now sometimes Christianity seems somber, doesn't it? But there are times that there are to be joy. The only thing is, here, actually Jesus sees this as disaster. That's right. Doom. Agony. Judgment. He said, Jesus, why would you spoil a parade like this? He's raining on the parade as it nears Jerusalem. He speaks of condemnation. He speaks of devastation. He speaks of destruction. He weeps in sorrow. Did you think about that? That he wept? On Palm Sunday, as he is entering in as king, did you know that? This is totally different than the way that we've seen it before. Yeah, that's what's happening there. It's quite different view, isn't it? And this will ever be etched on your mind if you didn't see this before. When Palm Sunday comes around once a year, it's not as joyous as we once believed. Dennis, you're taking the fun out of all this. I seem to do that a lot, don't I? I don't try to. I just read the text and study it and I go, oh, there's much more here than I thought. Have you guys ever had that? There's much more here than I ever thought. I ended on this note last week. The stone's cry out. And I said, that's where we're going to end and we'll
get to that next week. It's not what you think it is. Do you remember that? So here we are. His coronation is humble. He was riding on a donkey. We saw that last week. There's no dignitaries, no crowns. We know that people are fickle. We know that people are hypocritical. We know people are shallow. People are superficial. Jesus has dressed hypocritical Pharisees and leaders and other people throughout His ministry as Luke reports, right? It's there. I'm not just choosing to go on this particular topic, but that is what is here. They're crying out, Hosanna to Him. Save now. Save us now. Hosanna. They're screaming that. And they were talking literally thousands of people. What an impact that must have been as they came into the city. Did you know, a few days later, they're going to be screaming again for His blood. Yeah. Because He wasn't who they wanted Him to be. You see, Jesus really is truly King. They want Him as King. Their understanding, though, was the kind of King that would destroy the Romans and they would get to take over and be their own country and nation. He's a conquering King, alright. He'll overturn all the nations in due time. He hasn't done that yet. You know what He was here to do the first time? To bring salvation to hearts of men. How did the nation take Him? Rejection. As do most people in the world today. Even people who pretend to be His followers and they wave their palm branches, they throw the garments on the ground, they're loudly shouting praise and honor to Him. The Pharisees then tell Jesus to what? Rebuke the people. Because they're saying you're the Messiah. You know better than that. You cannot have this kind of praise to you. They rejected Jesus. The Pharisees already had. I want to tell you, whenever they say that, it's the very turning point of this celebration right now. Right where we're at today. As we see the parade in all of its glory, Jesus hits the turning point. He wants full commitment of the people, not what they think it is, not what they want it to be. He wants full commitment. That's been His message all the way through. Have you seen it through Luke? It's a, it's a horrifying, terrifying message if you're not His. The cost of discipleship demands your life, your soul, your all. We're not kidding. We're not playing church. We're not playing with the things that Jesus says. Either He means it or He doesn't. As we said, Bonhoeffer wrote that book, The Cost of Discipleship. And it demands everything to follow Christ. Not our works. 
demands our life though that we give to Him and He's Lord. So Jesus says, forget yourself. Take up the cross. Follow Me. Take up the cross. Die to self. These are the things of Jesus that are really hard to swallow. And when people really understand, that's what He's saying. Do they really want Him after that? Do they really want Him? He pronounces condemnation upon the nation. The very people that at that very moment were shouting acclamations, giving great high praises to the Messiah. And He says to the Pharisees, if they become silent, which they did, even the stones will cry out. That's where the twist in this story happens. It's shocking. It's tragic. It's something very different than what they were thinking. If their praise stops, it does. What will happen? What about the stones crying out? We will, we will get to that. Let's stand. Let's get to God's Word. And let's see how clear Jesus is on His statement here on Palm Sunday. We read verse 40. It says, Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we weep. We weep because Jesus weeps. We sorrow because Jesus was in great sorrow and grief. Because the people did not want who He really was. Lord, help us to understand this King who has visited us and to take Him seriously as for who He really is. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay. The rocks will cry out. Have we heard that before? The rocks will cry out. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees now. Now, there's a silence here. There is a silence because 
Jesus says, I tell you, if these become silence, if, it, it, it's not just an if, it, it is, it will. We know historically that that did happen. Now, did the praise of Israel stop? Yes, the people, a few days later, even at that time, started waning. The praise started dying as Jesus was in Jerusalem in that Passion Week. Do you see the crowds just gathering and the thousands just around Him to, to hear Him teach? He had really already done His ministry in Galilee and Judea. But He did come in. He did teach. And Luke 23, a few chapters ahead of us here, in eight, starting at 18, it's interesting. This is the, the Passion Week now. 23.18 This is what he's on trial. Pilate is trying Jesus again. Here's the people and the response. But they cried out all together saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He is the one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. A murderer. And they want him released instead. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify! Crucify him! And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? This is the Roman governor speaking to the people, many of them who had been in the crowd earlier. I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. I don't want to kill him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man, Barabbas, they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. You see, they were wanting him to be the king, and there they were. He didn't take over the kingship when he got into Jerusalem. And there is no reason to believe that he's going to do anything. What was this all about then? So there they are. Crucify Him. Sad. You see, that's what's going on. That's how quickly the people can turn against Christ. And since they became silent in their praise, they did. The stones will cry out. Israel has remained silent since then. The stones are crying out. What's this idea that the stones will cry out here in our Luke 19 passage? Cry. Stones will cry out. The word is krazo. It's a traditional thought. And we won't go away from tradition completely here. We'll first go with the answer that all of us would say this is what this means and to say that it's okay. It's good. If the crowd stopped in praising Jesus, even inanimate objects 
will be a testimony that Jesus Christ is King. Do you guys understand that? That's easy, isn't it? We know what that means. We are, are the rocks really going to start, you know, having mouths and all of a sudden, like the cartoons do, you know, and then start speaking and yelling? Well, they could. God could make that. I don't think we're really taking it that way. But we're saying whatever it is, God can make people continue to praise Him whether they want to or not. <laughs> you see, He is absolutely sovereign, isn't He? He's saying nothing will stop praise of Him. All the rest of His creation will shout that He is God. Even if people don't praise. So that is the traditional thought and the view there. God's unyielding sovereignty would ensure that the message was nevertheless proclaimed. The very good news of the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is going to continue on. You know what? For 2,000 years, it has done it. It will continue to do it for eternity. Praise God. Doesn't that make you excited? But there certainly is another meaning that is the theme that we want to address here today. Stones will cry out. Let's go back to an Old Testament passage in Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2. And you'll notice, you'll say, Habakkuk. It's not tobacco. It's Habakkuk. Hard to pronounce. Habakkuk, some people say. Well, what's going on with the prophet Habakkuk? Well, Habakkuk ask a question to God. He's a prophet. He asks questions that we do. He said in verse 2, How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. The nations rage. It was happening in Israel. He saw the you know, absolute depravity of man in his own country. And he says, how long, O oh Lord, is this going to happen? But he also saw it in the nations that were around him. Do we ask this question too? Yes. How long, O Lord? What are you doing, Lord? Why is this happening? Why are we in the midst of a war or close to war? Why are we being punished? Why is this happening? That's the kind of questions that Habakkuk has. That's what he really is uh, addressing. Why? Uh, verse 14, Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without rulers over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. I mean, they offer a sacrifice for their net, burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large. They are just taking advantage of all the nations. Their food is plentiful. They are being blessed. Why, Lord, are the Chaldeans and evil people getting away with this? You ever ask God that? Why are the evil people getting away with it? He's legitimate. He's a prophet. Ask God this. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? God, why are the Muslims 
taking over nations in Europe and coming over here in America and are taking cities, even taking states and uh, bringing forth Sharia law. Why is that happening? Is it beyond God's sovereign control? Nope. Stop it in a moment. Why doesn't he? They're evil people, aren't they? Yes, they are. They kill people without any remorse, don't they? Yes, they do. We have to defend ourselves, and we do, and we should. Habakkuk has the questions that we have. It seems like they got a blessing from God. Why aren't you doing anything, Lord? God tells him exactly why. He tells him that I'm going to take care of this right now. I'm using the Chaldeans to punish Israel because they deserve it. But the Chaldeans are doing things much further than the way that I will. They're doing it and exposing how evil they are and I will punish them. That's the idea. That is basically the idea throughout the prophets, isn't it? Nothing new. It's a bunch of woes that then are given. Verse 6, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. 12, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. 15, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. 19, Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, Arise, and that is your teacher. It's overlaid with gold and silver. We're talking about idols. That's the kind of people they were, the Chaldeans. So Dennis, wait a minute, how does this relate to Luke 19 about the stones? Well, what we want to do is look at verse 11. You get the context now, right? Surely the stone will cry out from the wall. And the rafter will answer it from the framework. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. That's what the Chaldeans were doing. You get it? You see what's happening? God will punish him severely, even though he used him against his own people. You see... It says here in 11, the stone will cry out from the wall. See, they took, they just plundered people. They went into nations and, of course, of their own people and everybody. It was to the expense of the rest of the world. and They extorted, they murdered, they caused bloodshed, sacrifice, slaughter. They abused people in a severe way. God was going to judge them. You see, the very stones in their houses and the wood and everything that made their houses was taken as plunder from other people. And so they could build their own houses out there in the desert. Wood, great stones, nice homes for them. These stones... What God judged them would be symbols of their wickedness. And even at that time it was, He said, surely the stone will cry out from the wall. The stones that they used in their building and the wood and everything that they made, 
was a test of, uh, a, a witness. It was testifying that what they had done was evil. God judges. It was symbols of their wickedness. The very stones that they had used to, as they plundered people, made the homes. So the walls of the house and the timbers of the roofs that plundered from others, gained by bloodshed, usury, it screams out about their wickedness. So the very homes that these people lived in was screaming out how wicked they were as they had taken from the people around them. Do you get the idea there now? With that context that Habakkuk's in? Those stones are always something that will cry out or people will remember. Stones were used to set up remembrances for people what God had done. But also it showed, here in this case, wickedness. So, all you do is look at their houses. They're testifying how evil they were. You know what? In Luke 19... approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Now jump over to verse 44. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Are you starting to get it? Are you catching it? Well, we're going to feature that in a little bit. What is happening here you know, the blood of Abel cried out because his brother Cain killed him. His blood cried out to God that he murdered him. The blood cries out. You don't hear voices, but it's a witness, it's a testimony. Cain was a murderer. That's another parallel right there, isn't it? Corruption and bloodshed. In this case, the rejection of Israel. We'll get on to that now. We go back to Luke chapter 19, verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Let's go into the weeping. This word means to sob. It means to be heaving. To agonize. Let's say it like this. It is the strongest Hebrew word for sorrow. Do you get the idea? That's how serious this weeping was that Jesus... This is the God of joy who is weeping. Can Jesus be a God of joy and weep at the same time? Absolutely. He wept more than once, didn't He? One time there's a verse dealing with in John where he said he wept. That's the verse. Shortest verse in the Bible. He wept. He weeps here over Jerusalem. He wept other times. Jesus sees through all this hype and everything that's going on. You would think he would have been a pleased God that 
they were shouting great praises. Can people shout great praises and still get the hypocritical? Yeah, see, he saw in the heart of man and it made him very sad. In his humanness, he wept in the face of their hypocrisy, their shallowness, and ultimately their rejection of Christ as Lord. He wept because he knew that they would come after that in judgment. There would be a nation that would judge them. Jesus sees all the way through this to the time that this would happen. He knew that damnation was going to happen. And He looks upon the city and His people with great compassion. He weeps. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. What kind of weeping and crying is this? Jesus wept, folks. He really cared. He weeps because of man's sin and rebellion and rejection. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of His flesh, what's that mean? His incarnation. Coming here as a man, He offered up both prayers and supplications, look at this, with loud crying and tears to the One able to save Him from death and He was heard because of His piety. We know that He wept in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't He? So much that blood came out of His flesh. It's how compassionate, how serious He was. Do you have a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't, why not? Because this is the passion that He has for us. You know what? I think He was looking beyond even Jerusalem to even our time today, right now, or before we came to Christ, that He had a great compassion and passion for our souls. He weeps. He cries strongly, doesn't He? This is Jesus. The strong Jesus who is compassionate. 2 Samuel 15. Interesting here. You have David. Who's David? He is from the line that the Messiah is going to come from. The great King David. Did you know that David wept? Well, of course, you read the Psalms and it's all over the place, isn't it? You know, there was a time when he was almost at the same place. There around the Mount of Olives. Around where Jerusalem was at as he overlooked the city with some other people. Did I say turn to 2 Samuel 15? If I didn't, now guess what? <laughs> okay. Okay. I need to turn there. 15 verse 30. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. Sound familiar? That's where we're at in our Luke passage. And wept as he went. And his head was covered and he walked barefoot. That's a sign of sorrow and repentance, grief. It 
He's really, really been affected. All the people who were with him, quite a few people were with him, each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. You see, his son that is running him out of his kingship. You see, as a king, he is fleeing Jerusalem. He's going up to the Mount of Olives and he weeps. He weeps that they would even do this and that would people would take the side of an unrighteous man, his son. And Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. They turned against him. He weeps. He's sorrowful. Shouldn't he be? Absolutely. He's a strong man. But yet the passion is there. And he's being run out of the city as the king. He weeps. It's the kind of weeping that Jesus does as the people here will run him right up to the cross. Crucify him. The whole nation turns against him. Look in Luke 13. At an earlier time, in Luke 13, 34 and 35. You might remember... This was back months ago. But he was in Jerusalem before. This was at a different time. It says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children. Look at the compassion here. He wanted to gather the children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Oh, he really does care. And you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. Now he does come back later, and that's what they're saying. And that's right out of Psalm 118. We looked at that last week, but ultimately, it's when he comes back the second time, as the nation will recognize who he is, the one that they pierced, and they will cry out to him in repentance. They will see him as Lord. So he's given a prophecy there. He wept at that time too. Or he cared for those people. That's the idea. Why did Jesus weep? There are a few reasons why. One would be the lack of knowledge as it says here in Luke 19. Saying, if you had known, verse 42, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, things which make for peace. If you had known, He weeps because of their lack of knowledge. You see, in the context that we're at in Luke 19, they're singing, they're praising, they're waving the palm branches. They're quoting messianic scripture of all things. Remember? They would be doing the Hallel, and then what? Psalm 120 through 126. They'd be saying these things, and they didn't get it. Can one 
quote Scripture and know everything that's said there and yet not be knowing Jesus Christ in the sense that He is to be understood. Abraham had told them. Moses had told them. Jesus tells them. The prophets had told them. Jesus had told them plainly, hadn't He? And they continued to be ignorant. Oh, if you would have known a lack of knowledge. You know what? There's a preconceived notion that they have. That's bad enough. But the ones that's worse are the ones that are willfully ignorant. Oh, that's what he has in mind. Don't want that. Chris Vine. They willingly reject the Son. And now we see it says at the end of verse 42, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Lack of knowledge. A lack of action. It's not enough to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that He's Lord, but it demands a response. Demands my life, my soul, my all. What are we doing with the knowledge that God gives us? What are we doing with it? Remember the parable of the talents? If you do not use it, then it will be taken from you and given to the ones that already have even more. It will be taken. Jesus had been saying all of these things before this. He's been setting this all up. And He says peace. The things which make for peace. Oh, if you had known about the things that make for peace. In Psalm 122, verse 6. (coughs) Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You guys ever heard of that? May they prosper who love you. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know what? We also need to be praying for our nation. We need to be praying for our president. There's been evil things unleashed against him. Keep praying for him as he stands for righteousness, stands for a lot of the things that would be scriptural. But even at that, the peace here extends far beyond what nations can do because there will never be peace here in this world. You can have world peace for a few months, a few years, but man is depraved. Why do we have police? Because we know that if we don't have police, we don't have any kind of protection, do we? Why do we have a government? Because God ordained those things. It's to protect mankind from destroying himself. He would have long ago destroyed Himself if God would not have restrained man. Do you know God is still restraining? Did you know there will be a day, as in 2 Thessalonians, where He says that He will take the restrainer away? Hands off. Go at it, people. That is scary. Do you know how close we are to that? I'm not so sure. Could have already happened. 
Can I legitimately say, God bless America? When we are as evil as any other nation and wicked and all the things that are underneath, even though there are people, that Christians are there and they're praying for righteousness and that they stand for righteousness no matter what. At the same time, why would God bless America? Abortion rate still continues. All the wicked homosexuality, lesbianism, LGBT, don't ever buy any of that, folks. Finally, they, they, they want to keep it hitting so hard. They put it in the TV shows. It's almost like every show that they have, they've got to put something in there. Men kissing men and women kissing women and uh, other things. Movies. Throughout all of anything that's presented in media, what, wherever it's at, and it's not only showing that this, hey, it's happening, they encourage it. How righteous of a nation is that? As Hollywood tells us how to live. Yeah, Christianity is very narrow, isn't it? You feel it kind of being crunched in even more, and it's like, wow, you know, what, you know, how far is this going to go? Stay on the narrow. Keep doing what you know to be true. Don't give in to the things out there that they're saying. Because a lot of Christians, and I put quotes, now are believing that it's okay to be LGBT. That's a fine thing. If they want to do that, that's fine. Let's don't judge them. We don't have to judge God's Word judges. Don't buy in any of that stuff that they're putting forth. Watch out because they want to get into your brain. And they're doing it rather well. Why are they doing what well, the enemy, which is Satan, knows exactly how to work this out as he works in the government, as he works in the schools, as he works in the media, as he works in the church. That's the way that he's always worked and he's really good at it. But there's one who has much more power than that. God knows exactly what's going on. And He will take care of it in due time. Keep praying. Keep praying for righteousness. Like, don't give up. And it's getting more and more narrow because more and more Christians, as they promote the things that the world promotes, as I talk about like the homosexuality, or even abortion and those kind of things, some of these churches are leading in uh, what would be considered the praise and worship, whether it be Hill Songs or Bethany. What do they stand for in the, as far as the homosexual community? They embrace them. They don't see it as wrong. They don't take God's Word seriously. It's not political peace that we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The apostles in the book of Acts, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's repentance and faith in Christ. It's the same message. He preached repentance. He preached the kingdom. He preached faith in Him. If you would have known and believed the things that make for peace, we're talking about peace with God. 
Because the world is at war with God. And so they put forth their propaganda to try to bring you over to their side. If you would have known and believed. They rejected peace with God. Now we go back to the Luke. The things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. They're blinded. What are we saying here? What What is this, the idea of weeping of Jesus? And it's lack of knowledge of the people. It's lack of their action. They didn't take on the peace. It's their blindedness that they have. They chose blindness themselves. It's self-imposed blindness. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4 also says that they're blind because of the ruler of this world has blinded them to the things of God, of the glory of God. There's a self-imposed blindness. There is a Satan blindness to them that all people have until the very grace of God comes into our hearts and changes that. See, we were enemies. We were blind. We were dead, right? But also... There is a judicial blindness where God blinds them. He hides things from their eyes. In the future, they will not believe. A chosen blindness, a satanic blindness, a judicial blindness. How can they believe? Look at John verse 12, verse 40. What about this blindness these Israelites had? 12.40 says, He has blinded their eyes. Look at verse 39. For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and He has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw His glory and he spoke of Him. Did you see something there that really stuck out? He, God. Not Satan there. God has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart. Romans 9, what did God do with Pharaoh? He blinded him. He what? He hardened his heart to where that he can't even get the truth even though it's presented ten times. God blinds people. Turns it over. He really doesn't have to do anything. See, they're already blind. But now, it's too late. It is done. They cannot believe. They cannot see. As they is stated here. He's just quoting. Jesus Himself is quoting Isaiah chapter 6. Look at Matthew 11.25. This is somber, isn't it? This is a different Jesus than a lot of the health wealth gospels present today. I don't think they would like Jesus in his fullness. Matter of fact, if you read these scriptures, they will definitely have a different twist to it. 
At that time, Jesus said, I praise You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that, what? You have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. Who are those? That's your religious leaders. And have revealed them to babes or infants. Who's that? Believers. He reveals the spiritual things of God to certain people. Others, He blinds them. He hardens them. Am I making this up? Am I making God out to be an ogre? Or am I making out God to be high and holy? See, the thing is, there is no reason for anyone to be revealed the things of heaven. We sure don't deserve it, do we? You believe Him? He's revealed spiritual things that the common man cannot understand. They're blinded. They're dead. And in this case, eventually, God will blind this nation, blind all the nations of the world. Look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Dennis, can you tell us some good news? <laughs> this is good news. <laughs> he revealed it to you. Why? Because He wanted to. Because He loved you. Second Thessalonians 2. Verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. This is the Antichrist, folks. That is, the one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. This is an actual man who will be given these kind of powers, the Antichrist. And with all signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And here you go. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. God will send a deluding influence. Nobody will see any kind of spiritual truth. Hands are totally off and He lets man do what He does. You know what the ultimate wrath of God is? When He lets man do what He wants. Stands back. Go for it, folks. Do it. Mankind will come up to this point of destroying Himself. And that's when Christ and all of His saints and angels come back together. And He's riding on His white horse. Hosanna, right? because, the reason I say that, if you look in Romans chapter 11 now, you say, well, he de- did He blind Israel? Did He give them a hardening? Yes, He did. Uh, Romans 11. Speaking of Israel all the way through 9, 10, 11, he tells God, God tells His plan through Paul here. 
And he says in verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, or uninformed. The word is ignorant, to not know, of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Here we go. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Paul is writing Romans here. About 30 years after this time that that's found in Luke 19. Okay? Here's Paul. He's saying, okay, God has blinded Israel, but it's partial. It means that it's not going to be that He's going to destroy Israel and that will be it for that nation forever and ever and ever and that's all it now. No. He says this, it's partial. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved just as written. It's still in God's plan. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove God ungodliness from Jacob or Israel. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And he says, here's to the church, hey, from the standpoint of the Gospel, they're enemies, right? They don't... They hate the gospel. They left it. It was offered. But he says, but from the standpoint of God's choice or election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Do you remember the promises? Noah, right? Moses, the promises. The fathers. He made that and he will not go back on it. That means he is not done with Israel. But he did back off and he hardened them to where as a nation, they're really not a nation for God. Most of them are atheists. Some of them are doing their Judaism which has nothing to do with Messianic Christianity. They do their religious acts. So, that's why in our Luke passage in 19, for now they have been hidden from your eyes from there on out. And I'll tell you when it really happened. It's in the next two verses. But just before we get to there, do you see the compassion that Christ has? The love, the grace. He's always had compassion. He truly felt for them when He wept, didn't He? Jesus is the answer is another reason why He wept. He's saying, I was right here. I kept offering and offering, giving grace and love and mercy. He's the answer to all the sacrifices that they had, all the fulfillment of the prophecies, the types, the figures. When he looked out upon that city, he just did not just see Jerusalem, but he saw mankind and their hearts and the way that they really are. He weeps. He wept because he saw it. He weeps because he's aware of another rebellion. It's a rebellion of sin that goes back to the Garden of Eden. The serpent. 
This is why Jesus came to Jerusalem this last time. He knew what was ahead in the next few days. And it's to deal with the results of this rebellion. And his death on the cross. That's exactly where he's headed. He is focused on one thing. The cross. He wept because most of those people will reject his sacrifice. They will be blinded as a nation. Last two verses now. This is where we get to the punchline. And it carries heavy weight. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Okay, it's the last part. Part number three, the coming judgment. You know what? When he says the days will come, it's an Old Testament phrase. Whenever he says that, it's judgment follows. I've got a lot of passages there. I don't know if I put it on your outline or not. We're not going to go through those, but it's basically saying the days will come. Judgment is going to follow. What Jesus now describes is something that would be like a Hellenistic Greek military siege upon a city and slowly choke that city to death. You've probably seen it in movies where there's a besieging of a city. Your enemies will throw up a bank before you, a barricade. They will surround you. They will build this barricade to keep everybody in. They will stay in and nobody can go in or out with this barricade. They did it with wood. The Jews burned it. So they rebuild it again. Rocks and earth. What they want to do is keep out and cut off the food supply and the water supply. Slowly people die. That's what the Romans did. It was Titus the general who ordered this. This was in 70 A.D. Like about 40 years from the time that Christ died on the cross. Jesus says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against... Historical. Everybody knows this. This is not coming off the top of my head. Jerusalem was destroyed. That great... Glorious city gleaming in the sky. The blue sky that was there and the gold that was uh, around the temple or the, uh, the, the stone that they used, the limestone. It was bright white. Just an amazing sight. Titus, according to Josephus, the historian at that time, uh, wrote a book called The Jewish War put their troops there and then surround the city, fully cutting it off. Your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. 
that happened historically. Josephus, the historian, records it. People know about this. There's nobody can deny this. And if they do, they're idiots. You know, they're just absolutely, uh, you know, ignoring history. They'll level you to the ground. This is Jesus giving a prophecy that happened within a lifetime. Some of these people that were living at that time were a part of this crowd that got destroyed. It literally means to shatter against the ground, to smash against the ground. The city will be sacked. It will be flattened. Your sons, your inhabitants... Your grandchildren that you you will have or you have now will be a part of this. They'll be destroyed. Five months is how long it took in that besiegement. And then the Romans went on in. People became cannibals. They ate their own children. Had no food. So that's what they turned into and they showed who they really were. Her actions. Everybody slaughtered children, women, adults. It didn't matter. Little infants. That's what happened. Jesus knew it. What's Jesus doing as he looks over Jerusalem? He's weeping. If only they would know. His heart goes out for them. He's not really rejoicing in the way that the people are rejoicing. He knows he's going to become king. And it's full of sense. It's going to take the cross. Yes, he wept before he went to the cross in his humanness. You see, here we go. They'll love you to the ground in 44, your children within you, and they will not leave you, will not leave in you one stone upon another. Did you know they went into that city and ransacked that city and destroyed the temple, that magnificent, amazing wonder that had been built, stone upon stone, and, and they were de- it was demolished. Not one stone is stacked on another. They totally destroyed that sanctuary. They burned the temple. Children, old people, young people, the laity, the priest, they were massacred. The temple was razed to the ground. Completely razed and its future people that would walk by there would see the stones of what was once the temple. And the stones cry out because of what happened. Of why the people had turned against Jesus. And the stones cried out. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying when He's saying, I tell you, the stones will cry out? You can't stop praising. We know it means that, but I think it means this, and this also in a very powerful way. The stones are still crying out. We know about Israel. How they turned their back on Him time after time after time after time. Jesus, the final prophet, deity Himself, and He proved it. And did it by the most through the death, burial, and resurrection. And they still, as a nation, rejected Him. 
because it wasn't what they wanted. Forty years later, this happened. They did not recognize the time of the visitation. Old Testament passage, a thought. It's visitation. It's the incarnate God. It's God coming in flesh. The day of visitation. It can be for two things. When Christ came, He visited the people. He came for salvation. The day of visitation can also mean what? You got it. Judgment. But the day of visitation here was for salvation. They rejected. They didn't recognize that God was visiting them for salvation. It was devastating what happened. Jesus described in graphic, painful detail that Israel's house would be desolate. Josephus, in his historical account, said that the nationalists, the zealots, caused for the nation's demise. Poppycock. Jesus had a different answer. He tells us right here. Here's the reason why the Romans came and destroyed the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Some people did escape and got out of there and they went to different countries all over the world. A lot of them wound up in Europe, treated and mistreated terribly. They still exist today as a nation, and they have their own country and land back where they once were. I think that's something that's crying out to everybody. Recognize what God is doing. And one day, all Israel will be saved. Israel chose the way of judgment. To miss Jesus is the time of visitation that when Jesus was here. Jesus was intent on fulfilling the will of the Father. Such is the way of the cross. Why is it that we still cling to the ideas that where God is, there will be everything positive? Miracles and wonders and prosperity. When the Lord is the one of need as to the donkey of rejection of suffering and pain he went through all of that what is the deal with the prosperity theology that cannot admit that there's still sin in this world and because of that That is why we still encounter something that is so evil. You see, we still battle against sin. We still see suffering. We still see people who are believers in Christ in places like Iran and Iraq who are Christians. Jordan. How about the Islamic Palestinian states that are all around Israel? Syria. Just go on and on. There are believers there. If somebody told them that they should believe in a prosperity theology, they cannot relate to that. They give up their lives. Even in a time that is the least, it's not even close to prosperity. 
Why would we believe that kind of gospel when we look at the gospel that's here in Scripture? It's not to say, I think we've been more than blessed ever, ever for the things that we have in this nation. Never have we ever been as rich as we are now, as mankind is in the, in the houses that we live in, the transportation that we have, the technology and all the stuff goes on. Theology is as it, it's open to anybody who wants to know. Anybody can find it on the internet. Truth along with error. We're not ever to take Him in the way that we want. You know what that is? It's idolatry. It's taking Jesus into something that He's not. We want the Father's will and what we know to be truth. I can't speak anything other than truth. And if it seems like I am very hurtful and if I'm painful in this kind of preaching... I cannot apologize with that unless I use a language of words that are wrong. What is, I want people to truly wake up. I need to wake up. I need to be serious because this is what Jesus was saying. He could have said, okay, you guys are all great. You're wonderful. You're all saved. No, He wept because He knew most in that crowd were not and they were going to kill Him. What are we doing about God's gracious visitation? What are we doing about that truth and the light of the Gospel? That's the question that we have to answer. It's a monumental lesson, isn't it? There was a catastrophe that happened with rejecting Christ. It happened. It's historical. Jesus prophesied of it. We never want to follow that path, do we? The world is lying to us. Don't follow that path. Stay on the straight and narrow. Embrace Him as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, great God, we stand back in awe as Jesus wept for people that were His enemies. We were enemies. He wept for us. The Son took on the cross. Our sins are forgiven. We embrace our Savior. We embrace our Lord. And we say, thank You, Lord, for Your great grace because You could have blinded me for the rest of eternity. And You didn't. You saved me. Lord, help us to take this Gospel message out knowing full well that most people will reject it. You told Isaiah that. You called him to go take it out. But then He also told him that they will not hear. They will not see. We have a duty to trust You, to repent, to proclaim the Gospel to the lost because some of them are the ones who are elect and will be saved. The ones that you have not blinded, you will give light. Help us to give glory and honor to you. Help us to be passionate about our faith and to take you legitimate because there is a day of visitation that we await. In Jesus' name, amen.